This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. Joining me this week, Thing 1 and Thing 2, but they've grown up into a pair of responsible adults, Renee Rodriguez. You know it. And Kate Lamphere. I don't know if I'm a responsible adult. <laughs> I mean, you're you're more responsible than Thing 1 and Thing 2. I'm glad that you guys are both here with me this week to talk about comic books. I'm super excited to do that. But before we get into it, I've got two things to throw out here. As a reminder, as we do every single year to everyone that's listened to this show long term, next month for the month of July, we are on break. So for an entire month, all throughout July, you can expect a bunch of mini-sodes from various folks on the show, um, as well as an interview that I'm going to be doing. Uh, the other thing that I want to mention that is that at the end of this month on July, excuse me, on June 26th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be doing a hangout as we usually do per month. We'll probably do one in July as well, so keep a lookout for that. But nonetheless, June 26th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard, we'll be hanging out with folks that just talk about comic books and just, you know, chill. Maybe do some fun. Maybe, maybe play some games. Who knows? But before I start blathering too much about the potential opportunity of so much fun we can have together on the internet... Let's get into this thing. Let me ask the legally mandated questions that I have every single week. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Kate. I've been good. My tiny little garden out back of my condo is loving this insane, uh, very hot or raining weather. I am mm-hmm, not loving mm-hmm. it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you are not a plant. Right. Uh, I read The Green River Killer, finally. I actually checked out this this book <laughs> Um, a couple of months ago from the library and then it was just sitting in my library books pile and I eventually just turned it in because I had run run through all of the automatic renewals and I just hadn't read it I hadn't read it hadn't read it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so finally I saw it on Hoopla like I don't know four days ago and I was like it's time to read this and then I read it immediately nice (laughs) I feel like going from hey I've got a nice garden to I read the green river killer (laughs) It's such a 180 that I wasn't expecting from you today. So uh, what did you think of this? Um, this is by Jeff Jensen and Jonathan Case. And I um, I ended up enjoying the story. There's two different timelines in it that kind of flow in and out of one another. It's the, the timeline of um, Jeff Jensen's father being on the case trying to find the Green River Killer. And uh, like during that time in the 80s and 90s. And then it's also the story of like fast forward to him catching the Green River Killer. But it's not like a it's not like timeline one in the 80s and then timeline two in 2001. It mm-hmm. they, they are like interconnected anyway. Um, so the the reason that Jeff Jensen's father was on the case is because he had volunteered to be the like the computer guy that enters all of this data into the newfangled computer um, the department got in the eighties. So he's mm-hmm. he was the guy that was familiar with all of these details and ended up being the only detective on this case for like at least ten years probably. So. Right. Um, I just, oh man, that was rough for me to think about because I, I have a job where I get the feeling of accomplishment that I finish a project like a couple times a week. I can't imagine being on the same case for over a decade and just like there's, there's no movement in the case for a long time. Um, the Green River Killer ended up being caught by DNA, uh, technology pretty much Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. and and then the the dad retired um like the day that the 
that the murderer was caught. He was like, I'm, I'm done now. And he yeah. came in as a consultant. Anyway, um, it was it was a very fun story to read. Um, I I feel like like maybe I should have said spoilers, but at the same time, this is history. And also this book has been out for a while. And yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot more nuance to the book than you're you're getting into. Right. Um. I, I, I remember when I read this, I think Nick recommended I read it because he's obsessed with true crime. And I remember just being floored by some of the interesting things that happened in the real world that the story tells. Um, and I think like you're glossing over a lot of the details intentionally, I think to not give a true or full spoilers of yeah. everything, but man, there, there's a lot of really interesting and super dark stuff in this book. Right. And like, it was really focused on the, the creator's father and his, his father's uh, experience with, with this case and with the murderer. Um, mm-hmm. interrogating him specifically more toward the end. And I, I I get it. Like, I understand that that's the story that he wants to tell is, is the detective's side of the story because that's what this creator was familiar with. But at the same time, mm-hmm. this guy had at least 48 victims and you hear maybe half a dozen of their names. And yeah. I just feel like I, I get that that's not the story that he was telling. He wasn't going to, like, tell the tell all of these people's life stories and everything but it would have been really nice to have some kind of like memorial page at the end with their names or something yeah yeah um but it was a pretty quick read for being over 200 pages i think that when it was sitting in my my library books pile for months and months um i was just intimidated by the physical size of it but it was very fast yeah um and i just it's just a really addicting read too yeah if you if i remember correctly yeah and i just wanted to say nancy and our goodreads group has a really nice review about it so if you're if you're on goodreads go check that out um you can find her through our our goodreads group page and if you're not on goodreads check it out anyway (laughs) (laughs) agreed 100 percent agreed uh renee what about you how have you been how have comic books been for you dude um i've been good been a little busy with work, but, uh, you know, that's good in these trying times. And uh, uh, comic books are always good, although um been kind of in a, I don't know, I guess fantasy, sort of dark fantasy type area for comics. I haven't mm-hmm. been re- reading any kind of funny stories lately other than my weeklies. <clears throat> But uh, this, I guess, this past week I read um, the first five volumes of a story co- of a manga called Ubel Blatt, with story and art by uh, Etoroji Shiono, and it's a fantasy revenge story. Um, basically, this knight who was a member of this group of knights that were sent by the emperor to go destroy a like altar or something. It's kind of vague at the beginning, or at least where I'm at. They destroyed this altar of the enemy nation or something like that and three of them died and then seven of them kind of ended up like just being like ah no we're not doing it we quit and we're left to go back home so only four of them went finished the mission and then on their way back home they were ambushed by the seven killed and then the seven went back became known as heroes throughout the their country and the four that actually finished the mission are you know kind of known as like the disgraced lances because they were all given lances by the emperor but it turns out one of them survived and has been spending the last 20 years plotting his revenge and then ubel blatt starts with him you know going to go make you know make his vision board a reality um 
Holy shit, dude. <laughs> this, sounds, this sounds insane. It's uh, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. There's a lot of fantasy elements. There's a lot going on, but there's also like technology. It's very graphic. Um, but like it's been, I've, I've seen it half a dozen times in like libraries and Barnes and Noble. And like, you know, it's come across like just, they're like, hey, you like crap like this. Check it out. <laughs> and I was finally just like, you know what? I am going to check it out. And then, you know then I ended up reading like four volumes in a day. Um, there's 24 volumes, I think in the entire series. Although I think in English they release like one volume as like, like a two in one type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been reading that. And then um, in Saturn news. Uh, so back in May, uh, the artist, the mangaka Kentaro Miura uh, passed away. And uh, for those of you that don't know, Kentaro Miura uh, drew the, Story Berserk, which is a manga that's been running since 1989. It's a it's commonly known as a power fantasy book, but it's it's incredible. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly dark series. But in reaction to Kentaro's passing, I decided I needed to own Berserk finally, just because mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. fantastical piece of art that it is. And personally, I don't think there will ever be another story like Berserk or another artist like Kentaro Miura. And yeah. I just decided I needed to have it and. So I bought the they, uh, Dark Horse uh, has been releasing the deluxe editions, which um, are just, you know, these large volumes of uh, or collections of Berserk in the 30 years mm-hmm. that it's been running. And I think they have like seven or nine volumes out. And I, I just having a hard time even talking just because Berserk is such a, a big goliath story but it's incredibly emotional like the vastness of berserk's world and the depth of each character is inconceivable and just just kind of knowing that we'll never see the end of it or have any of our questions answered just really really kind of saddens me you know but even even i mean and it's one of those books that's been going on like since the like late 80s like 1989 was its its published date so like and it's this has been it's influenced generations of mangaka yeah. you know it, whenever you see you know the anime boy in black clothing and a gigantic sword like that's cuz of berserk that's cuz of guts right right you know and there's there's you know you read through berserk and you see it and you're like oh that's where that reference comes from it's it's very similar to like when you're reading jojos you're like that's where these people got that inspiration but you know, even mm-hmm. with Berserk being incomplete, you know, it's still it's still a masterpiece and it's still worth the read. But I will say that it is filled with horrible, horrible things. It's incredibly graphic. It has right. it has it's just filled with graphic and horrific depictions of war, emotional, physical, sexual abuse. It's not something to go into lightly. Right. Only bad things happen in Berserk, and it is it is so emotional. It's gut wrenching. It's so crushingly depressing. It is horrifying, heartbreaking to say the least. Mm-hmm. But if you can get past that, if you have the strength <laughs> for that, right. Right. You know, it's still an incredible story and I, and you know, worth looking to. And I think that, you know, it's influenced countless stories like we've said, and I think it's going to continue to do so. So yeah, that's what I read this week. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it's unfor- You know, it's really sad. The story behind the you know passing of Kentaro Muria. Uh, it's it's Mira. mostly he 
people are saying Moreski, excuse me. Um, it's it's unfortunate if only because he passed away from what they're considering to be like stress related, uh, injury or like bodily damage. Yeah, right? he he um, had um they Berserk had um hiatuses that were very very legendary. The, he would his last hiatus I think was for more than a year. Mm-hmm. You know, and he would just be off and on, off and on, just because he was he put his heart and soul into those pages, and the, you can tell that he put everything into yeah. it. But it's, you know, creators giving their all for these stories. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I guess uh, I don't know. I don't know how to move on to that naturally, so I'm just going to jump right into things. Say, what did you read, um, Mike? uh i've been i've been kind of all over the place i've been uh slowly slowly but surely recovering from like this sprained ankle that i had so ultimately i've been like trying to get out more and do more things and uh let's see uh, other other than doing that i bought a bunch of manga that i didn't necessarily need to own but i wanted to like i now own copies of way of the house husband in like physical form and um five all five volumes of chainsaw man um, I went out to Dewey's Comics out in Dover, New Jersey, which is attached to the Joe Kubert School of Art uh, and picked up Department of Truth Volume 1. So, like, I've just been buying comics because I think that I have room, even though I definitely don't. Like, I can see boxes of comics still unpacked behind me, so <laughs> I need to stop buying them. But nonetheless, uh, I can't stop, won't stop. I've been reading a bunch of books. Uh, I've been slowly but surely catching up on Demon Slayer with our manga reading group on Discord. And... Yeah, I recorded a, a mini sub with Nick yesterday uh, about Ice Cream Man quarantine comics. So I read that recently because I've been kind of sitting on it waiting for us to record. So look forward to that in July. Uh, but the two books that I do want to talk about uh, are Dead Dog's Bite number four. This is by Tyler Boss. Uh, it's basically the last issue of the run. It's very abrupt. It's a it's a really quick like wrap up of the story, which kind of begs me to ask you know, what is there more to this story than what I read in the first three issues? Um, because the fourth issue seemed to wrap things up very quickly. And I don't want to say that it was predictable, but it didn't seem like mind warpingly interesting. So I'm wondering if I need to actually go back and read that entire book from start to finish. Tyler Boss has an incredible eye for design and layout. And I think that some of his, his comics are some of the most beautiful precise books you can read on the shelves i mean you know you think of some of the pages that really astound you in in uh, david aha's hawkeye or any of the other books that david aha's worked on where you're just like wow look at that fucking page tyler boss has that same sort of style he has all he he's looking at things in a lens that i don't think a lot of creators are where they're, they're they're looking for page composition and style and symmetry and a million things at once and not to not to diminish other artists but i think that boss is like elevated his craft to a different level and it's it's clear that he's done some of that work in dead dog's bite like you saw it a lot in in four kids walk into a bank and i think that that comes along with a great collaborator but the the end of this issue was a little bit i don't want to say unsatisfying because it it can it finish the story um but i feel like i need to go back and reread the whole book to get like a clearer picture of what boss was going for in this book and then one other thing that i will say about this book is this the, the title credits font that he uses like the credits font or the, just the font in general for the series is some of the best use of a font to de- to des- describe the feeling of a book that i've ever seen there is just this overwhelmingly powerful dark feeling that you get from looking at the font of this book and i don't think i can think of another book that does that as well as this one does so yeah i mean dead dogs bite it's a really interesting book i think i need to go back and and read 
reread this um, once it's all since it's all out now. But there's that. And then the other book that I want to talk about really quick is uh, The Nice House on the Lake Number One. This came out a few weeks ago and everybody and their sibling were talking about this on Twitter and how great it was. And I remember some folks on on our discord we're talking about it as well so i picked it up this is james tinney in the fourth um alvero martinez bueno on pencils and inks uh jordi belair on colors and and world design on lettering and this is probably one of the most intense number ones i've read in the last few years the last decade like i haven't felt this on edge on my seat almost going to have a panic attack since like since ever. I don't know if I've read, ever read a book that made me feel like I need to go walk and do some breathing exercises after reading it because this book freaked me the fuck out. And it's not in like a, oh no, there's a monster. Oh no, there's a demon. There's just, there's something so creepy about the just build up of this book towards the end. And I definitely 100,000% do not want to spoil this for anyone because the turn in this book for me, I didn't see coming at all. And I was really, really impressed by it. I know that I talked to other people who are like, yeah, well, it's pretty obvious. I don't care if you saw it coming. Like that doesn't mean that my my surprise is any less surprising, you know? So I, I really like that Tinian was able to really twist our arms with this and make us, you know, basically distract us with one thing and then have another thing happen. The sense of realness to this book was disgusting um, in the best way possible. I felt like all of the characters that were in this book were real people. I felt like the story that he was building was really like honestly real and true and like i could know someone like this and it probably doesn't help that this book takes place in the new york area and it feels like yeah i've gone to bars with people and had weird discussions and all this kind of stuff but yeah i i my only worry with this book so far is that i feel like we're going to get the story is going to flatten itself off or flatten itself out after the first issue the mystery of the book is going to get solved too early but because it's a 12 issue series i think that tinian is going to he's probably going to do a great job with this book. Like, I don't know why I'm doubting it, but like my worry is that it's going to get flattened out too soon. And the last couple of issues are just going to be drawn out into like a big question mark of like, yeah, that's kind of disappointing. But with what every, with what he's done so far with the department of truth and, you know, James Tinian's a fantastic writer. Dude knows how to tell a really good story. So in a 12 issue series, I think he's going to actually lay things out. We're going to get some good pacing and some really interesting discussion, especially as we explore all the characters in the story. So, yeah, the the thing that really got me in this book was some of the art, the action moments in this issue, and I'm being super vague, um, floored me. Like there are some interspliced bits with social media that I thought was really, really clever and like really well laid out in a way that made me feel like I was looking at a real internet feed of things. Like if I pulled up a big page that had tweet deck on it or something, I could see all this stuff. And I feel like, again, this book just is poking into my brain and it hurts how well Tinian has either gotten to me or has just created a, a fantastic story. So the the last thing I'll say about this is the lettering is incredible. Uh, I don't know what, what level of like work the and world design, the person from that company and James Tinian did to try to make some of these pages work with the, the narration and the captions and some of the sigils and, t- and the, the symbology that he uses for some things, but man, it like, I really, really understood things in a way that was like kept me informed sucked me right into the book and kept me really interested because this book feels so unique the more you read through it and i'm really really impressed by it so here's hoping that number two was it doesn't fall flat on its face (laughs) uh but yeah this book's really good and it'll scare the living shit out of you uh i'll just say that 
let's move on. Let's talk about comic books that are coming out on June 16, 2021. What are you both excited for this week? I'm going to kick it over to Kate. I'm excited for Maker Comics Survive the Outdoors by Mike Lawrence. Um, This has seven survival projects in it. So I've been a fan of the Maker Comics for um, maybe... Uh, well, really, since it started, I think I picked up maybe like the the third book they ever released in this series, and um, I've kind of been following them since then. I haven't read everything that they've done in this series, but I really enjoy it. It's got um, a really good balance of like information about a topic, and then it also uh, presents that in a, in a story. And the story in this one, uh, ba- uh, from the description, is that two kids go fishing in their wood in the woods with their grandpa and a sprained ankle throws a wrench in their plans and he has to teach them uh, first aid camping without a tent cleaning a fish and some more stuff <laughs> um, <laughs> and i was in a in a co-ed boy scout organization called venturing when i was a kid so this is like right up my alley nice you're gonna go out into the forest and and save someone's broken ankle or something i might you never know okay, okay. <laughs> i believe in you kate uh <laughs> Renee, what about you? What are you excited for this upcoming week? Look, I've been really, really enjoying a new series that has really kind of blown beyond my expectations. Like I had high expectations at the beginning of it, and it's only raised the bar each week that I've been reading it. Mm -hmm. And this series, of course, is Hard Boiled Cop and Dolphin. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 47 next week. Chapter 40. It's been – things have gotten serious, guys. Okay. So first of all, story and art by the incomparable Ryuhei Tamura. Uh, but again, things have gotten serious. We've had some flashbacks. We've had some battles. And like a porpoise with a purpose, it's on. <laughs> it's so on. It's it, – the writing has only gotten better. It's outrageous. It's serious. It's got mythology. It's great. It's great if you aren't reading Hard-Boiled Cop and Dolphin because of the way that it looks, because it's got a dolphin and a hard-boiled cop, because Mm -hmm. there's a little girl that can talk to animals and also turn animals into gangsters. You got to let all that stuff go. Just just be free. (laughs) Read the manga. You won't regret it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. You know, you're not the first person to recommend this book to me. And I feel like maybe I should just do it. Maybe I should just go in and catch up because it's only 47 chapters, right? Yes. That's just a good sitting. Mike Rappin, you know? have I ever steered you wrong on manga? <laughs> I mean, honestly, honestly, I don't think so. So, you know, I should just I should just dive right into mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll consider that once I maybe once I finish Demon Slayer, I'll pick this up and just, just drive through it really quick. But for me this week, I'm excited for Time Before Time number two. This is Declan Shalvey and Rory McConville, uh, art by Joel Palmer, colors by Chris O'Halloran. I can't stop thinking about this book. I don't know what to say about it because there, it's it's time travel, it's crime, it's it's kind of weird. The art's a little wonky sometimes, but I think that that all factors into kind of the strangeness of this book. Uh, you know, I th- I think um, Joel Palmer's art is kind of. Maybe not for everyone, but for me, I think that if you had a more quote unquote realistic art style um, or something that was more traditional, it probably wouldn't work as well with a story like this that kind of needs this blurry layer of how does that scientifically make work or, or make work make sense? Because, you know, time travel is messy. But I think that with the the, the, the serious twist in issue number one um, with 
our you know our protagonist and his friend and time travel and all that stuff i think that there's a lot of potential for this book to be really cool i also think there's a lot of potential for this book to fizzle out in a way that is really exciting um that could, means that it could end abruptly but in a way that is satisfying so i i really want to see more of this time traveling crime stuff and i think that shelby and mcconville have done a good job of telling a story that that works without making you think too hard. And again, that description of it, something meets looper. It makes me so mad how accurate it is. I don't want it to be that, but uh, nonetheless, this book's great. And I I think everybody should be checking it out. And it's probably going to make a really, really good trade, like a really good collected edition. The first arc of the story is probably going to read super, super well. Um, But I love number one. And I think number two is going to be even better. So with that being said, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about, a very interesting topic because uh, I dove into this uh, thinking one thing and then suddenly was um, flabbergasted with the results. So uh, we're going to be talking about revisiting a comic or two that you read when you first got into comics. My pick will astound you. We'll be back in just a second. Today, I am talking to two insane comic book co-conspirators, folks that have worked on books that maybe you've, you've heard of, maybe you haven't. I'm here with Dave Baker and Nicole Gu. We are here to talk about Everyone is Tulip, their brand new comic that's dropping from Dark Horse on June 16 in comic shops, June 29th everywhere else. Dave, Nicole, how are you both doing? Dave, welcome back to the show. Nicole, welcome to I Read Comic Books. Could you tell us a little bit about what Everyone is Tulip is, I guess, as a comic book and why everyone should go and pick it up? Yeah, sure. Um, Everyone is Tulip is a 160-some-odd page graphic novel written by me, illustrated and co-colored by Nicole, along with colorist Ellie Hall. And it's about a young woman from Arizona who moves to Los Angeles with the hopes of working in Hollywood as an actor and she ends up getting sucked up into the high-stakes world of YouTube performance art, which is a real thing. And uh, she's involved in a series of kind of bizarre online performance art videos that kind of go viral, and she becomes this kind of meme in L.A., sort of, and she is forced to kind of reckon with uh, the nature of on- online uh, viral fame and and also is presented with questions of, kind of how far is she willing to go to get what she wants and what compromises uh, is she she willing to make in order to kind of preserve her moments in the sun, as it were. Holy smokes. Uh, (laughs) That is, it sounds extremely heavy in a lot of ways. Is that what you guys were going for with this? (laughs) We don't often do light. (laughs) Okay, okay. I mean, yeah, I, I've read, you know, I read some of the, the, the fuck off squad books that you guys did. I guess, you know, you're trying to get into like actual people's hearts and minds. And I, I think that this this book, at least from the pages that I've seen, um, for those of you who are listening right now, you can go to everyoneistulip.com and read 48 pages of this graphic novel for free. But yeah, I, I, I love everything that I've seen so far. I mean, I think in your, your director's commentary that you did for the first episode or first page of the book that was on the website, you mentioned that this book had been building for like five years. What? How do you how do you build a story like this for five years? And I guess what was like the holdup, if you don't mind my asking? It's a combination of a couple things. Dave and I conceived of this um, about five years ago while we were on a trip um, to Thought Bubble in Leeds, and we kind of went to the show, um, sold some books, 
and then decided to travel around. Um, uh, we went to Paris and to London and kind of had a little vacation after the show. And we spent the whole time talking about this book. Um, and we were mostly self-publishing at the time. So we kind of, with the intention of pitching it around, just started the book. And we were working on it for a while and kind of right in the middle of it, I got the job to draw um, Shadow of the Batgirl for DC. So right. I had to kind of do both for about a year and a combination of me multitasking, us trying to pitch the book to Dark Horse and a couple other publishers, as well as find a colorist to work on and finish the book with us. Um, it just kind of ended up being this extended period of time where it took a little longer than we were expecting, but also comics in general just takes a lot longer than people think it does. Right, right. Yeah, 160-some-odd pages. That's not something that you just wake up and roll out of bed and is just done, unfortunately. Right, It's not just the drawing of the book, though, because there's so much you end up waiting for publishers or doing this or that or the end process of putting the book together. Everything just takes longer than you think it's going to every time. (laughs) And and you mentioned, you know, coming from, like, the self-published world, you know, what was the... I guess what made the change from doing this, like publish it yourself and doing the distribution, everything that you normally would for your other books um, and instead working with Dark Horse, like where did that changeover happen or was the idea to work with Dark Horse from the get go? We had put out, you know, you mentioned Fuck Off Squad, uh, which is our coming of age uh, romance skater kid comic that Silver Sprocket Mm -hmm. put out. Um, And that book, uh, you know, I mean. I think it, I think people liked it, you know. I think there was a couple. There was a little, a little bit of that indie buzz, as they say. And uh, I mean, I liked it. Thank you. I <laughs> I, I like it too, but I'm a probably biased because, like, right, right. You know, I I like the characters in that book more than like some of my own family members. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, yeah, I wouldn't take my I wouldn't take my my opinion on it as completely un, unbiased. But uh, the book found its way into the hands of some people over at Dark Horse, specifically our editor, Connor Knudsen, who uh, approached us at a show and was just like, hey, I read this Fuck Off Squad thing and it's really good. Do you guys want to do something at Dark Horse? Like, do you have any other ideas? And um, I was like, uh, yeah, let's fucking party. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I sent him some ideas and we talked about some stuff. And then he, you know, I showed him some pages for Tulip and he was like, whoa, this is this is cool. Also, it didn't hurt that, you know, after Nicole's name, there's a little parenthetical that says DC Comics Shadow mm-hmm. of the Batgirl. Um, <laughs> right. So, you know, that I think that kind of helped grease the wheels because, you know, I, I don't know that there's a ton of comics that are kind of like Tulip. You know, now there's there's stuff that's sort of starting to be produced like it, you know, kind of, you know, I think people who like Snot Girl would like our book. People mm-hmm. who like, mm-hmm. you know, Maybe Bloom or this one Summer. Maybe they they might be into it, but there's you know there's not a ton of like well produced sad people sitting in rooms talking comics that just you know that look like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's it's very funny that you say that because I look over at my shelf and those are all the books that are sitting there. So I guess this book was also made for me as a comic book reader, <laughs> uh, which makes me very excited. Um, the thing that you know I I think is really interesting is like this feels like something that's very unique for Dark Horse's publishing. Because again, you name a bunch of books and those books are coming from like first, second and and publishers that I think are trying to do a little bit more, 
you know, less capesy books, less books that are kind of oriented towards the, you know, the big comic book distribution model and instead like focusing on these OGNs that I think are harder to sell in some comic shops. But there, then there are people like me who actively seek out these kinds of books. Um, so that's to me really, really exciting. I know that you guys have done other OGNs in the past and stuff, but to see Dark Horse pushing into this is, is really exciting for me as a reader. Um, yeah, me too. But, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to see how it's going to go. Uh, I mean, honestly, like, from my perspective, there's nowhere to go but up. Like, you know, totally. You know, Nicole, obviously, Nicole's Nicole's the 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 smoke show here. She's the one that's got the the massive fan base and the, the <laughs> legions of people being like, Nicole, please, Nicole, look at me. I'm here. Notice me, senpai. Notice me. That's uh, not a thing. So this is snot girl, is what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah. But you know, for me, like, I'm I'm you know I'm and Nicole. Joking aside, like we're both so used to self publishing that mm-hmm. you know i for something that we made and created completely and own completely for it to get a wide distribution and be seen by a bunch of people hopefully um that's a mm-hmm. that's a really big you know step up you know whether that's a couple thousand more whether that's a thousand more whether that's 15,000 more i have no idea but i'm i'm just very excited about the potential of it yeah self publishing allows you a lot of freedom for what you want to make and how you want to make it. You can do literally anything that you want, but Mm -hmm. in terms of the number of eyes that are going to be on your work, even if you do a really good job of calling shops and sending your book out and, and getting it to as many places as you want, Dave and I hand sell our books personally at conventions. um, And that's how we get them to people having a, company like Dark Horse, who just has kind of the mechanisms to distribute your book in this kind of broader way, it just, it makes a lot of difference for the number of people who are going to be exposed to what you make. For sure. I mean, I feel like that's how we met you guys, isn't it? I feel like we met you at like a show, maybe in Chicago, maybe. I don't remember, but I feel like... Yeah, it was either emerald city or chicago i can't remember one of those two but like yeah we definitely like i just happened to walk by i saw a book and i was like oh this looks really cool and then i think we just exchanged contacts and we just like kept in contact after that but yeah i mean like that that whole exchange is is definitely in my mind like what the self-publishing world looks like like i don't think i'm going to establish a connection with someone at dark horse in that same kind of manner you know yeah totally or even just like you know the 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 existential black hole that is self-publishing is that your book only gets out in those specific parameters. Whereas mm-hmm. with Dark Horse, you know, there's, they've got warehouses. They're going to be shipping books all over the country, even the world. Like you're going to be able to right. order it through Diamond, even though Diamond isn't going to be here for that much longer. And, you know, all of these, <laughs> all of these, you know, mechanisms where, you know, you can go into a comic book store and the odds of seeing Action Hospital on the shelf is very small because I personally sure. will have had to have sold them that. Whereas the odds of seeing everyone as tulip on the shelf, hopefully, will be uh, dramatically higher, which is something I'm very excited about because I feel like, um, you know, there's a there's a there's a real gap in the market, and there's a readership that's hungry for stuff like this, and mm-hmm. you know, Nicole's artwork is really good, Ellie's colors are really good, and you know, I don't think I'm a terrible writer, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and to steer this a little bit back towards the book, 
Um, I mean, one of the things that I noticed that becomes like crucial, like even from the the first like 20 pages of this book is the influence from social media. Um, so I was curious, like you do guys do this really cool thing with I think you talked about in the commentary, like I was glued to that when I watched it. So thank you for putting that video out. You talked about this like social diamond thing with the with the iPhones and stuff that you said started in another book and carried over to this one. Like how did how does the like change over the last couple of years of social media as like one thing dies and another thing grows influence this book? That's something that is definitely it's definitely it's definitely been on both of our minds since the book has been done for an extended period of time. And mm-hmm. you know, like when we started this book, TikTok wasn't a thing really. And now right. it's everywhere. And you know, it's it's uh it, it, it thankfully I don't feel like the book has been completely pushed out of relevancy or become dated in some major way, right. which I'm very excited about. But I, I but I'm I'm also just excited that you know, like you're talking about within the book, there are, there's this narrative mechanic where we have nine panel grids, and then inside of the grids there are patterns um, using cell phones replacing certain numbers of the panels to create shapes, either an X or a diamond. And the, both of those shapes play thematically into the structure of the story, and they also play visually into the constructions of the pages. And you know, Nicole just did such an amazing job realizing that you know and rendering that Mm -hmm. in in two dimensions three dimensions whatever you know what i'm saying like it's so it's so easy for me to be like all right so i got this idea right we're gonna have a nine panel grid but if you pull your eyes back and look at it it's gonna there's gonna be phones that form an x over the page and that's gonna be thematically related to what's inside (laughs) the page right 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 saying that is you know that's that's so easy but nicole executing that so brilliantly and making it communicate so well is really what I think pulls the whole book together. You know, like there's there are multiple narrative mechanics like that inside of Tulip that I don't know that another artist could be. Like Nicole truly is a co-creator of this book. And uh, I know that there's going to be dumbasses who I would talk about the book and say, Dave Baker's Everyone is Tulip, which is it's <laughs> right, just right. stupid. Like writers can't be auteurs in the comics medium uh mm-hmm. it's just not a it's just not a thing that can happen uh watchman is only great because of fucking dave gibbons mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and now uh this concludes uh the meeting of the nicole goo fan club uh mike i pass the mic back to you <laughs> there's been yeah. plenty of that for one episode <laughs> yeah well i mean and you know nicole i guess to kind of like to get into your head about this, you know, what, how did you go about like designing? I don't know if you thought about this, like Tulip's phone. I think a lot of times when you see phones like this in, in media in any kind, like just the look of the phone and how the phone is designed and all that stuff can really speak many words about like a certain character. Like, was that going through your head as you were showing Tulip's phone throughout the book? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely part of the um, thought process when you do anything like that. And, you know, I started drawing this five years ago and essentially I was using my phone as a kind of basis for what I was looking at. Mm -hmm. And at the time I already had an outdated phone. So Tulip is, or rather Becca is not necessarily someone who's supposed to be super up on the times, at least when Mm -hmm. we start the book, she doesn't have a lot of money. She is not really keyed into how the industry works. And she has kind of this sort of outdated phone. Now that this book is coming out five years later from when I started drawing it, that's even more kind of um, 
drawn out and extended for, you know, what her technology looks like. Um, but I yeah. think it still kind of plays as, you know, there's, like Dave said, there's a, a real risk when you dive into topics like this of making something that's dated very quickly. Um, but I like to think of it more as like a snapshot of a certain time because the technology just changes so quickly that you kind of can't ever keep up in a meaningful way when things take as long as they do to make. And so instead of worrying overly about, oh, well, you know, Instagram is not as big a deal. It's more TikTok now. It's kind of like, this is the environment that we lived in for this span of time and that we're commenting on. But also our next book takes place in 2005. So we just completely <laughs> went backwards <laughs> in time. Right, um, right. Uh, but yeah, I, I think like there's always a risk and it always you always have to consider the way that technology changes and how it affects the way characters interact and um, how we interact with our world. Like how many people are going to be reading this comic on their phones on our on our website that we're putting it out on, you know? So that stuff mm -hmm. then is like another meta level of dealing with technology. It's just so pervasive through our lives that there is no world in which you can't consider it anymore. Definitely. Now, now I think we've gone far beyond the comic. Um, <laughs> and, and, and now this is the, you know, philosophy podcast where we're going to talk about how technology influences our life but because i think that that's really interesting that i'm you know that is a portion of the book yeah. you know just this this overnight sensation thing um with that I, I i really enjoyed there's there was something that you guys had mentioned about watching like there there are these youtube videos that that kind of formed the basis of this story could you guys tell me a little bit about about that because i feel like i'm missing some context there yeah sure so there's there's a there's an, a weird little ecosystem of people who all kind of do this thing of these weird atonal performance art videos. Uh, there's a Russian performance artist named Dal Vida who takes photos where she's like, you know, it's a typical influencer shot where it's somebody like posing in front of a mirror or whatever, but all of the walls will be made with bacon. And it's like a, you know, it's like an anti, <laughs> you know, eating animals or, you know, pro vegan thing or something like that. Or, you know, like, Sure. Um, there's another person uh, named Poppy who does a similar thing where she's kind of, they're like these weird David Lynch short film style atonal things where it's performance art and she plays a character. And, and even, mm -hmm. even to a certain degree, like Bella Porch, who's like the biggest TikToker right now, is kind of like that. It's Bella Porch is a little bit more commercial and naked in her in air quotes, influencing where it's kind of these silly videos where she's lip syncing to things. And, but it's also, mm -hmm. it's also kind of not like, you know, you can see her life changing over the course. She has 64 million followers right now, which is just, I can't, I can't that's, yeah. that's, that's larger than like a lot of countries, you know, <laughs> like, like that's crazy. Yeah. Um, like, isn't there like 150 million people in the U S is that right? Or is it 300 I think, million? I, th I think it's like 350 million. All right. So if it's 350 million, that's like a third of a third of America follows Bella Porch. That's crazy. Right. That's crazy. Right. And, you know, you can see it re reflecting in her real life and the decisions she's made and, you know, the not to be mean, but 
elective surgeries that she's partaken in. And mm-hmm. um, it's very it's very interesting to see how that amount of attention can warp someone's world in a positive or a negative way. Um, you know, right. and and so you know, there's like like a like I was saying, there's like a weird little ecosystem of these people who do kind of in air quotes fine art esque influencing. Um, which I don't really like the title influencer. It kind of doesn't make sense to me because it's not about the act of doing something. It's about the effect, you know, mm-hmm. like it'd be really mm-hmm. like, instead of being a comic book artist, it would be like being called like a paper pusher or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, <laughs> like the, it's, I, the act is that you are creating a thing. The act is that you are making something and putting it into the world as a, as a creator or an artist. And influencing right. isn't about that thing. It's about the radiating waves that that thing has, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's just really, really weird to me that that's the title that we've all collectively agreed on. But yeah, I, I, I'm very interested in, in new media stuff. I work in a new media company. I'm constantly surrounded by it, uh, both for the positive and the negative. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Nicole and I got really into a few of these people a couple of years ago and were really kind of obsessed with their lives and their um trajectories and it's very interesting to see where they've all gone definitely that i I, you know you mentioned some of those names that i I, i'm starting to recognize like where a lot of this is coming from so now now my interest is even more peaked as to where this book is going to go after the few pages that we've had so far um that are available online which again everyone is tulip.com everyone go check that out it's incredible my last question i guess before we wrap up here is We've been really getting focused on this on the show, so I'm curious to know what your process is, uh, Nicole. Like, I believe you did the lettering for this book as well. How did you go about like structuring the book to make sure that the lettering worked for what you guys uh, like what Dave had written? Yeah, so <laughs> that dilemma. Of... <laughs> hey now, hey now. <laughs> Not specific to you, but it can be specific to you. Um, that mm-hmm. dilemma of fitting text into artwork like that is something that's actually really hard for me. And the thing that really shifted my process is when I got my iPad and started working on Procreate to be able Mm -hmm. to, I actually letter as one of the very first stages of my process now. Oh, So I'll do like thumbnails and then I will, as I pencil, I drop in letters to make sure that there's space and I draw bubbles into the page Mm -hmm. and I do draw them on top. So if we need to change stuff, we can. And also if, if Dave wants to rewrite stuff later, that's fine, but we know exactly how much space there is. And I know exactly how much space around the bubbles there are for um, the artwork that I'm trying to fit in there because, you know, a a couple of our early books, I didn't plan as well um, or I didn't have the processes down in the same way. And we had to shove lettering sideways into a panel or cover up something that I didn't want to cover. And Mm -hmm. it was really frustrating to me. And so kind of discovering that I could do this all at once was uh, kind of groundbreaking for me. It also makes my process take longer. Um, It's a double-edged sword. I'm like lettering before anything's even done. And sometimes that can bite you in the ass later, but um, it really, really makes a difference for me to be able to figure out exactly how much space I need before I finish my drawings. Gotcha. 
it makes me wonder how people even manage to make lettering work when they're all, you know, there's four or five people in the process, you know, with editing and all that other stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. to play devil's advocate, I would argue that a lot of mainstream comics don't make lettering work. Like, I think, you know, this is not hmm. a slight on the letterer or letterers in general. I think it's just a reality that I think because mainstream and specifically big two lettering and the creative conveyor belt is built to separate you know, powers and to shore up editorial say, as opposed to creative influence from the actual creators. That's why you get things like, you know, uh, a bunch of guys jumping out of a plane on a splash page. And then there's 15 word balloons where they're like having a conversation while flying through the air in one panel right. because right. somebody somewhere fucked up and the artist changed a panel and didn't realize something. And now we have to do an exposition dump in one place. It's the only space in the book that has it. So this is what we got to do. Like so much of that stuff, because it's such a churn and burn environment, you know, the, the, the monthly deadlines are just brutal. Like it's uh totally, you know, it, it, it <laughs> it's not, it's not conducive to good comics always. Um, yeah. which is, you know, probably not going to be changing anytime soon, but you know, I, I just wish people had longer lead times. Like I, <laughs> yeah. I was watching an interview with Brian Hitch the other day and he was talking about how for the ultimates, they started that book and he had to turn in the completed first issue of pencils in one month. Like they didn't have any lead time to develop or work on the actual thing. And like, look how much of an impact that story has had like that first volume of the ultimates is basically what the whole entire mcu is built off of mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. imagine if they had had like six months lead time it would have been crazy <laughs> who knows what they would have gotten maybe we would have gotten a third ultimates book instead of that right you know, dog shit joe mad thing <laughs> well listen no one wants mark miller to write any more marvel books i think no, that's, that's yeah, what no, it comes I, down I, to I'm same here um, i don't want mark miller to write anything <laughs> like i right yeah um well uh I, as much as i would love to keep keep going with that i i do want to compliment nicole one more time uh page 22 and 23 of this book is absolutely beautiful and i think a lot of people will pick this book up just on that page just want to shout that out it's like a just a two-page spread uh that is just becca just saying everyone is tulip um i i was like fell out of my chair when i saw it so i just wanted to make sure i shout that out because i had that in my notes but yeah uh thank you both so much for hanging out with me today uh <laughs> sorry nicole i didn't give you a chance to tell me to stop complimenting you but uh... <laughs> we, we both know that's one of the reasons why i'm always uh so so uh ecstatic about her work because i can tell it makes her uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to be rude. Uh, but really, I, I do thank you both for coming on the show. Um, this was an absolute blast. I looks I very much look forward to reading the full Everyone is Tulip. And everyone out there should go pick it up on June 16 at your comic shop or you know from, from wherever else you buy comic books on June 29. Um, this looks like it's going to be a fantastic read, so I'm very excited to get it in my hands. Thanks, man. I appreciate hey, you. Uh, so yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about dumb shit. <laughs> Liz, I love talking dumb shit, especially when it comes to comics. Um, where can people find the both of you on the internet if they wanted to maybe ask you some more questions about what you really think about diamond distribu distributors? <laughs> um, you can find me at uh, NicoleGoo.com or on Twitter at, at NicoleGoo or Instagram at, at Goo, And my last name is spelled G-O-U-X. 
And you can find me uh, at heydavebaker.com or on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at xdavebakerx. Or if you want to listen to my podcast, I co-host and produce a an explainer podcast called Deep Cuts, where my co-host Andrew Price and I pick an obscure topic and walk the listener through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty so they can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at their next forced social function. We've even, in fact, it's we we go ham, man. We do we do crazy shit. We did a whole episode about the rise and fall of Napster, but we did it as a musical. Eleven original okay. songs, two and a half hours. You get to hear my dulcet tones. We also did an episode about Buckaroo Banzai and the many unmade sequels. And we got Earl Mac Roush and W. D. Richter, the writer and director of the original movie, to produce and write an original ten-minute narrative sequence that goes at the end of our episode. And we got two of the actors. <laughs> From the movie, Pepe Serna as uh, as the Reno Kid and Billy Carruthers, or Billy Vera as Pinky Carruthers, to be in the scene. So it's me, my co-host, and two of the characters from Buckaroo Banzai canonically hanging out. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> well, uh, I'll put all the links to that in our show notes for this episode. Thank you both again. Don't forget, everyoneistulip.com has all the information, and you could read 48 pages for free of this book. It's amazing. Um, Thank you again, Nicole and Dave. We will talk to you all soon. Before we get into this week's topic, I forgot to announce our Discord picks for this week. So Danny said that he's excited for Venom 200. I just wanted to shout that out because I totally missed it in my notes. But let's get into things. Let's let's revisit a comic or two that we read when we first got into comic books. I'm really curious to know what Renee and Kate have to say. So let's just start with you guys because my pick is just absolutely awful. Uh, Kate, what, what, what book did you revisit for this episode? Oh, boy. Well, I revisited Sailor Moon. I, I was... Oh, t- my... I, I feel like I've always said my first comic book was Runaways, but then I realized mm-hmm. a few months back that it was Sailor Moon. I was picking up Sailor Moon when I was like 11. This was so long no ago way. I'd forgotten about it. <laughs> That's what... How, here's the thing. Like, What buried Sailor Moon in the back of your head for so that when you revisited it, did you like become a child again when you picked it up? <laughs> um. I I feel like I forgot about this because I I had originally gotten into the anime and I read the manga as like a a way to keep keep going with the story like keep it I don't know being be able to pick it up whenever I wanted basically instead of having to wait mm-hmm. for the show to mm-hmm. be on TV. And when I when I revisited it, I I had actually tried to revisit it a few years ago and I and I couldn't do it. There are some things about it that are kind of cringy now. <laughs> Sure, um, sure. And I couldn't I just couldn't keep going. Like I feel like I rewatched that first episode or reread that that chapter 1 back in maybe 2019 and I was like, "Oh no, I can't. I can't do it. This is going to ruin my <laughs> my good memories of, of Sailor Moon back when I was a uh-huh. kid." And this time I knew that going in. <laughs> like um like I I knew that um originally they had adapted Sailor Moon into English back in like the the nineties, and mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. turned turned that version into the anime for English for the English translation. And they'd really censored it, and they'd really Americanized like the names and everything. 
And even even some of the original translation terms are really rough, especially around any, any technology like they called like what was basically a walkie talkie a remote. And oh, yeah, that tracks. That makes total yeah, sense. Yeah. <laughs> and and going back into it, I knew that they have had since retranslated it. So it, it's much more modern uh, for the technology terms and they didn't censor it as much. And it, they kept the Japanese names and just just knowing that they they kept trying like they kept bringing it back it was still it was still mm-hmm. popular enough to uh to make it better <laughs> pretty much uh that really yeah. helped revisit well what what kind of censorship did they did they put it or pull out of the the story so the main thing that really stood out was that there is a a same sex couple lesbian couple later on in the series and they tried to make them cousins for the english translation Right. Kissing cousins, cousins that sleep in the same bed, cousins that hold hands, Ugh. cousins that, you know, uh, uh, come on. Yep. That's, that's <laughs> what happened. Um, oh, no. <laughs> and then, you know, actually, um, one of the things that they did when they they retranslated the manga is that they took out the commentary from the creator um, in the manga, oh. which was kind of like... The commentary and manga sometimes is very distracting and sometimes it doesn't really add anything to the story. And I half the time I don't read it, you know, but for this I for, disagree, but OK, that's fine. No. OK, so so for Sailor Moon, I think that her commentary, uh, this is by Naoka Takuchi, that really ad- did add something to the story for me, like knowing that this woman created this story to kind of celebrate women and femininity really did help mm-hmm. Um my my rereading of it where sometimes that those things can kind of bother me if something is like too much like for example in the first chapter slash the first episode <laughs> there's this whole thing about a jewelry store all these girls are really into going and trying to buy some of this, this very expensive jewelry and it just it feels really capitalist to me mm-hmm. but at the same mm-hmm. time like reading the creator's commentary about it she's like these things aren't you know like enjoying jewelry isn't a bad thing and i wanted to kind of highlight that and make it not you know not awful (laughs) um sure and the fact they took took that kind of commentary out i feel like it didn't it didn't hurt the manga but i knew that it had been there before um and i missed it gotcha um gotcha and but but going back to your your censorship question, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that was in this commentary was that uh, the creator was like, I feel like the anime is is more male gazy than what I, I made the manga out to be. And ah. yeah, like there are definitely now that I've like researched this a little bit more, I know that in the original uh, Japanese version of the anime, there is definitely more detail in the nudity than than what they kept in the english version and Mm. i haven't watched enough of the new translation the the kind of like revisited anime um to see if they kept that part censored or not like i don't think that there's any like full frontal nudity or anything but with the like magical girl transformations there's definitely some some more detail than than you necessarily need for this like i guess i say that as an american you know like Right. Um. But, or like, there's uh, there's scenes where this like one of the sailors takes a bath, and you definitely can like see through the water versus not see through the water for the English version. Version, mm-hmm. just things like that. I mean, you know, I guess maybe there's uh less 
uh, tabooness about boobies in Japan. Yeah. Though I think that that's absolutely not the case. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just really interesting that that even the creator had noticed this about the anime. Yeah, well, I, I you know, American, I don't know, the Americanized of pretty much everything causes a lot of censorship like dragon ball for instance is one of those things where you know you watch the early dragon ball uh cartoons and you there's definitely moments where drag where, where goku is walking around with his little tiny boy penis hanging out and uh it's 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 done for comedic effect like and you read the manga and it's in there and it's not sexualized it's not anything it's just a little boy took his pants off and ran around and i think that as adults people find that funny like when a little kid just like runs naked you go oh no that kid is naked <laughs> uh but i i don't know I, I think like for maybe for sailor moon it was that it was kind of a like a sexualization of of women um like teenage girls and stuff which is kind of uh not okay uh, by any means but i don't know it depends maybe maybe there's more to it that i just don't understand but um americanization of a lot of things tends to typically censor stuff like that when it could remotely be taken sexually yeah i think i am going to keep going with this in some form i haven't quite decided if i'm going to rewatch the the original or or the newer version of the anime i have noticed that like with the original version of the anime there's kind of this this nice um pastel coloring to it even though it is it is definitely an older anime style but then the newer mm -hmm. anime that they like redid the art for it's like the backgrounds are beautiful like very i don't know i don't want to say like a miyazaki style because that's not quite right but that that much more i don't know soft um uh kind of very natural art to the background but then mm -hmm. the the speaking characters are like airbrushed a totally different art style and i found it distracting but from the from the little bit that i did reread and rewatch in both the old ver old versions and the new versions the new the crystal it's called uh, sailor moon crystal the new version is is a little bit more true to that original manga that is not like if, if it had not been uh americanized gotcha yeah, Danny in our chat is saying that Sailor Moon Crystal is top-notch animation. So I guess if you're trying to get into Sailor Moon, maybe you start there rather than trying to go back to the OG stuff. Yeah, I actually watched a YouTube video called Why You Should Watch the OG Sailor Moon Anime, You Cowards. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that, that was a really good YouTube video. She did a very good job of uh, kind of giving you the rundown much better than, than what I'm doing. Um, gotcha. Well, maybe so I'll, I'll link that in the chat for people that want to... Uh, potentially look into that but uh you know before we dig any further into into sailor moon uh renee what about you what's uh what's something that you wanted to revisit i know your list is a little bit bigger than mining well Gates. so because i had a really like i grew up with comics my brothers had comics and whatnot sure, sure and then i just kind of fell off with them for a very long time and then it was like my junior year of high school that i my i went to go visit my brother out in california and he bought me a random issue he was like pick out a comic book that you want and i grabbed one and then that got me back into it so i and i still have all these comics and i actually went back and bought some of the ones that i you know remember reading as a kid so i have all these comics mm -hmm. and whatnot so and i've i reread the weird thing is though is that when you said you know grab one and reread it if you have it in a while but it's like i reread these comics a lot <laughs> 
Okay. Just because, like, that's okay. of like, like, I guess it's like people are like, oh, you know, instead of watching a new show, we're going to watch our old favorites. I don't do that with TV shows, but I do that with comics all the time. Hmm. Like, I, I read uh, Hikaru no Go, like, at least once or twice a year. Like, through the whole, the whole series. I mean, I can understand that, though. <laughs> that, that, that book is probably one of the best manga I've ever read. Yeah, it's so good. And, um... You know, I reread through Naruto every once in a while and mm-hmm. and uh, Dragon Ball Z because I have almost all of Dragon Ball Z. Well, look, I, again, I don't want to say that my manga collection is impressive, but it's not not impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but so I, I think I'll just go with Hikaru no Go because I am that I almost have that series collected all the way in in uh, physical volumes. I mean, the whole series is on the Shonen Jump app. Um, so, I mean, I can, if I am reading through it, then I'm like, no, I don't have the next volume. All right. right. We're going, right. we're going to the phone. But uh-huh. like I was rereading Hikaru no Go volume one for this. And I was like, man, this is so good. Cause I actually originally read like the first chapter in like a preview book that my friend had given me. Hmm. And that made me want to actually like, you know, I saved up money from my summer job and then I went and I bought the first volume. I mean that that first chapter is pretty good though Hikaru is kind of a little shit. He's a little uh, he's a little shit through like most of the series. It isn't really I mean, to, that's, like... I mean I know that's <laughs> that's why I'm kind of surprised that that first volume or first chapter would be enough to be like I got to get the rest of this. I, I think I still have this preview book. I think I do. Uh-huh. I do. I found it immediately. And right. I think it's like the it's the first thing. I don't know what it was. I have no idea why, but I was like, you know what? I want to know more about this boy, this board game, and this ghost. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's, it just captured me on a level that I don't think I could begin to explain. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I still have this previews book. <laughs> That's how much Renee, it captured me. <laughs> I feel like your room must just be overflowing with nostalgic items. I don't understand where you keep it all. It's not even. Uh, here's the thing: is I'm actually I. I don't have a lot of things other than books. <laughs> like I don't keep stuff. Okay. I don't keep stuff like uh, other than books. Like honestly, I found my, my yearbooks, but I was like, the only reason that they're here is because they're books. Cause like, I don't have anything else sure. from high school. Like someone's like, Oh, sure. do you have that megaphone that the cast all signed for the play we were in? No, I didn't keep that crap. <laughs> <laughs> it's not well, a book. Yeah, I, I don't gonna... care. But the point is Hikaru no go is excellent. And mm-hmm. like like mm-hmm. Kate was saying with uh, censorship and um, with Sailor Moon, there's actually something very interesting at the end of, of volume one where someone in the American translation, someone puts a piece of gum on a go board. But in the Japanese version, it's a cigarette. Oh, right. And so when you get to volume yeah. two, like he's sticking this piece of gum, but there's smoke. And you're like, why is there smoke from a piece of gum? Oh, it just must be <laughs> because there's, it's cold. And the gum was from yeah. his warm mouth, I guess. Uh, yeah, from his yeah, that's, and then like his and, warm mouth. I don't know. And then he's like, he's like, I'm gonna put a cigarette on your hand if you can't guess this thing or whatever. And, uh-huh, and it's uh-huh. like, it's like I was, I always thought like when I first read that, I was like, that seems a bit extreme. He spit gum on a yeah. billboard. Now he's threatening to put a cigarette on his hand. He's not an adult. And I was like, mm-hmm. no, that's the point. Is that he's a dangerous kid. 
Okay. He's a dangerous boy. He's like the kid from the Karate Kid who's, you know, smoking up a doobie at the Halloween dance in the bathroom stall. Like, that's a dangerous dude. <laughs> so, so Renee, what was it like going back to this book, I guess? If you, you reread this pretty regularly. Like, I do. What, how, how has your view on this book changed since you were, like, younger to now? I guess I understand it a little bit more, and I always try to solve the problems since I, I actually mm-hmm. know a little bit about Go now, as opposed to like when I first read it, I had no idea what was going on. I was just like, yay, that's okay. a colorful design on that thing. Whereas now I'm like, oh, I wonder if I can actually solve this problem. And the other difference is that, you know, when I read it the first time, I had no idea what was going on. And I was just kind of taking it in and being swept away by the magic on the pages. Whereas mm-hmm. now I'm reading it because it's interesting, but at the same time, I... I want to capture those moments that are my favorite again, mm-hmm. you know, like gotcha. there's, and, and this, this happens like, like, you know, there's, there's farther moments in the series. Like when, I guess it's in volume one, Hikaru snaps down a stone properly for the first time. And the art yeah. is gorgeous and watching it unfold on those panels, you know, that you sort of get this feeling that I think is that like, I it's, it's probably not as strong as the first time. Mm-hmm. But it's still such a wonderful moment that I enjoy revisiting again. And it gets me excited to read the rest of the series. Yeah. But I think it's like one is that knowing in the back of my mind, yeah, that was a good series. It is a good series. But rereading it and sort of seeing, knowing knowing how it is now that I've completed it, but being able to go back through it again. I don't know. I just enjoy it. But like, it's weird because you know that it's good. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm explaining it correctly. <laughs> no, I, I understand. Like, there's a nostalgia to it, and I, I totally get that. I guess w- what's really interesting here is I feel like you and Kate picked a book that you were like, yeah, like, or, or Renee, you've got a couple of other books, but like, you guys picked some some options that were like, yeah, I have fond memories of reading this thing. I picked a book that I have slightly fond memories of. Like, <laughs> I remember reading it and thinking like, yeah, this is so fucking cool, guys. Like, I love this book. Uh, I picked Battle Pope Volume 1 to go back to and read. Uh, This is by Robert Kirkman and Tony Moore. And I just want to say that this book has not aged well. I repeat, it has not aged well, uh, (laughs) to say the least. Bless you. Um, I I think the reason I really liked this book when I was younger uh, is because I was in college and like I just like freshman year of college and I felt really cool um, reading a book about like the pope and it was so anti-religion and oh man look at how blasphemous this book is it's talking about the pope and it, and jesus is in the book and jesus is like an idiot with a gun and they're killing demons and the, yeah the pope is like he's like having sex with a bunch of women and stuff and women just can't resist it i was i thought that that was funny i thought that that was really funny for some reason so like for those of you that don't know this battle pope is a story about the world ending demons coming up from hell and then the world kind of making a mutual agreement after this rapture where people are raptured to heaven that like everyone who stays on earth has like is can basically work with demons but some people still go to hell and they're like is this door that went to hell but it is now closed and saint michael is sent down to basically watch over the remaining people on earth even though they're all sinners and bad people including the pope who was like a womanizer and a hard drinker um before everyone got raptured and the pope ends up sleeping with this woman and these demons show up and they kill the woman and then they kill him but then god and jesus are like hey you can't die you need to actually save saint michael who's been taken by lucifer lucifer's trying to steal his halo which is where angels get all their powers and so battle pope 
Pope, I guess, whatever, he goes on a, on a quest to try to uh, save Michael, but his sidekick is Jesus, and it's all just nonstop, like, don't worry, I'm going to kill all these people and then sleep with these hot babes. That's the comic book. And there's probably there's more to the story. Like, Kirkman does his you know, he, he sets up the world so that basically Battle Pope can go around and be a shithead and it seems like normal and it feels like a 90s comic book come back into the year 2000 because that's when this book came out, the year 2000. And uh, Tony Moore's art is okay. Like, I think it's very much Tony Moore, but at the same time, the line work is so heavy. I was wondering if Todd McFarlane like, inked this book. Yeah, it's... Uh, I remember why I thought this book was cool. And then I think I started reading other comics and went, oh, yeah, uh, don't ever go back to that. And I never did. And I've, I've, you know, I follow some podcasters who like talk about this book, about how wild it is and how that it exists and that it was made by Robert Kirkman. And it's clear that this is a very, very, very early Robert Kirkman book. This is when he was basically just trying to get people to look at his book versus, you know, following it up a few years later with The Walking Dead and creating one of the most successful comic book franchises in recent history. I think, you know, Kirkman as a as a businessman is probably really smart and <laughs> that he knows what will get people to pick up his books and see his name um, and kind of have them go, what the hell is this book? Because Battle Pope, I think, exactly was that. From my understanding, this book didn't last very long. I only read the first four issues because that was all I could put myself through. <laughs> Honestly, this book is so, its every single page is just another bad joke, like something sexist, something over the top, something that feels like a like someone that read a bunch of 90s comics. Like if you read Lobo or you read Spawn or you read Savage Dragon or you read Youngblood back in the day, and then you wanted to make a comic that was like an homage to the mentality of like, I'm a badass dude the comic book that's what battle pope is and then of course it helps doesn't help that it's you know basically making fun of like the christian religion but like not in an overt way just like using the characters of the religion which to me you know makes a lot of people mad um but yeah or i guess i for my understanding it makes people mad but yeah it's um yeah i don't know what else to say about this i went back and i could not read much more than the the few issues that i read um, you guys have any questions? Because I'll gladly scream about this book some more. <laughs> I do. I I'm curious what you guys think these early comics did for your interest in comics. Like, did did it cause you to look for similar subjects or look into more look into more books by that creator or anything like that? Mm. I well, I, I'll safely just say this. Like, I don't think I actually read this before I read Invincible. I think I was reading. Or maybe I was reading Walking Dead. So like back in the day, uh, Image used to put these little inserts into all of their trades. And you would get this. I got this insert for The Walking Dead. I think I was reading it said other books by Robert Kirkman. And it was Invincible and Battle Pope. And I remember I couldn't find Battle Pope anywhere. And so I ended up, I'll, I'll freely admit, I pirated this when I was in college, right? I bought the issues to read for this this episode, you guys. I paid money for this comic book. <laughs> But back in the day in college, I couldn't find it anywhere. So I pirated it because I didn't know how, where else to get it. Um, and I I just wanted to read more about uh, Robert Kirkman. I wanted to read more of his books because I really, really liked what he was doing with The Walking Dead. I really, really liked – eventually, I really, really liked his Invincible. So, like, I just wanted to read more of the, the same creator. Now, I remember you reading Battle Pope in college. <laughs> I remember <laughs> preaching the gospel of this book. <laughs> I remember that. I was just like, I'm not going to do that. 
I know. Well, I remember. Yeah, because I know when we first met, I was a, I was a bit of a shithead. I totally get that. I mean, like there are jokes in this book that are just so weird. Like it's all muscles and guns and cigars. At one point, Battle Pope sleeps with a what he calls satanic jailbait demon. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, to to answer Kate's question is like. It's basically I wanted to read more Robert Kirkman, and it turns out that he did a book that edgy eighteen-year-old Mike thought was really fucking <laughs> on the nose, really gonna piss off those 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 Christians back in school because that's the kind of kid that I was. Not anymore. I'm thirty-two now. I'm no longer eighteen. <laughs> I tried to grow. It it made me want to read the uh, the other books that were in the uh, the graphic novel preview that I had. It was really hard to find those books. Uh, but then also like the uh, after the last page because like the the end of the book ends with uh, or the end of the preview book ends with the Prince of Tennis, which was a series that I have tried to read multiple times, and mm. uh, it's a lot. It's like it's it's pretty good. I do like it, but I don't think Prince of Tennis is one that you can marathon. It's intense. Uh, but the the very next page after the Prince of Tennis ends is a little thing for Naruto. And at the time, mm. at the time, I did I hadn't watched Naruto, I hadn't read Naruto, but I heard about it, kept hearing about it, and eventually, I just kept seeing it in this preview book, and I was like, "Well, let's see what this little boy ninja is about." And then we never looked back. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, what about you, Kate? I feel like, well, okay. So first of all, I kind of didn't go anywhere after sailor moon immediately in terms of comics mm-hmm. i think that that's kind of why i i sort of forgot about it in my history with comic books is i just doubled down on my love of sailor moon i watched the anime i read the mangas i got the movies on on vhs i mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. getting all of these extra extra pieces of of media related to this one single fandom and that was it like i did not pick up another comic book until i was in yeah pretty much in in your house in college at one point (laughs) um but i think that it did kind of open up my ability to accept comics as a medium because especially you know in my very small little town that i grew up in it was kind of like oh comics are are just for kids and blah 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 you know um Mm -hmm. so i think that it it kind of paved the way for me to pick pick them up again later right what about you renee i don't know if there's any more any well, more to like, like there, where you went for i guess you already said you went to naruto i, did, I, I went to naruto <laughs> after that but like when i was a when i was a kid i you know i didn't i just had like these random comics that my brothers would get and i've told okay. stories like that before like there was this uh little comic book shop across the street from my uh middle school and this was before i really got back into comics but i would just i would go over there just to see what comics they had and if I had mm-hmm. like a dollar or two from like change in the in the couch or something like that, I would grab one. And I still remember one that I grabbed, and it was Spider Man number fifty one, just another Manic Monday. Mm. It was it it's uh it's excellent. The cover has fallen off now, but uh, it was actually the first time. Can't get that CGC graded. What? <laughs> I yeah. said can't get that CGC graded. Yeah. So the uh, but it was the first time I saw Francisco Herrera's art style, and I love it. But also, mm. like, this series, I still remember so much about this comic. And, like, re- reading through it, I was like, oh, yeah, I love the way that that web is. There's a bunch of one-liners in the comic that I ended up using, you know, through my adolescence like a tool. 
Uh, <laughs> listen, you know what? When you're younger and you think something's cool, man, I totally get that. And But, like, you know, there was always that desire to get back into comics. I think that was always there that I always wanted. And I think just, you know, hitting that bug after getting that preview book, you know, some five or six years later mm-hmm. that just kind of pushed over the edge that like I can read more stuff. It, like there's, there, you know, there's ways to get it. Like there wasn't hoopla back then, but you know, there was libraries and random sales bins at grocery stores and stuff. And, and, you know, there was right. like the gas station that'll sell you five books for five bucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there were ways to do it. And mm-hmm. if you had $3, you could buy a random comic book and, and again, like I even felt like really, I kept looking for previews books because I was like, you know what, this will this is at least a little sample of multiple things. And like I think I also bought like those. Uh, they had Shonen Jump magazine, the U.S. edition, where they just had mm-hmm. like a handful of chapters from the most popular manga that had animes going on in the U.S. So I have a couple of mm-hmm. those as well. But I think what was kind of going back through these these comics was sort of realizing, you know, how how my life has kind of changed. Cause back then I was just kind of grasping at anything that either looked familiar or cool. Whereas mm-hmm. where now I can sort of explore and do different things. And I should probably do less of that because I'm running out of room in this room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Danny said earlier that he just imagines your room is just not beds or chairs or anything. It's just piles of books that you sit on and sleep you on know, and he's, stuff. he's not far off because like there are books everywhere there's <laughs> like it's everywhere like my desk has a bookshelf in it and that is overflowing there's books on the desk on top of my mm-hmm. books there's a bookshelf i've got books on i've got books on top of my skate stuff you know <laughs> yeah yeah he's not far off well one of the, one of the things I realized going back to reading this, like this is kind of the last question, is like, how do you guys feel about these comics now that you've read them? And I I just want to answer first in that saying that I realized that you know sometimes you read books and they're not all winners, but I think that that is a lot of comic books. Is that you know there are there are books that came out during a certain time period, right? Like two thousand was an interesting time for comics because Marvel had almost collapsed, DC was kind of just doing what whatever they want. And Image was kind of on the precursor of the rise that became like the modern era of Image, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, going back and revisiting this, I'm like, oh my gosh, look at how far I've come as a comic book reader. (laughs) And like the kinds of things that I'm willing to put up with, the things that I recognize are not cool in comic books anymore. And you can say like, oh, this book is of a certain time. But even at the time, like, there's definitely something kind of gross about this book that i should have picked up on it like because there are books that come out today that are like intentionally super edgy and try to get out there but they're being put out by like not huge publishers because i don't think people want to read that anymore and the people that do want to read them you you kind of want to sequester them in a corner uh in a, in, a, in some ways and so i i'm glad that i read this as a younger kid because I think that I would have been if this was one of the first books I picked up now, like say I hadn't read any comic books up until this point, I probably would have been super turned off by comic books because of how like childish and over the top this book is. Whereas a lot of the comic books that we read nowadays, I feel like have a lot more nuance 
Um, not to say they didn't have them back then, but like, you know, just the books that I was reading back then didn't have a lot of nuance. They were just in your face, kind of action packed books, um, you know, early X-Men or X-Men from around the time, as well as like some of the image books that I mentioned before. That doesn't make them all bad because I still still think Invincible is a pretty solid comic book, even despite its issues. I think the early, you know, first half of Walking Dead is a fantastic comic book. I really enjoyed reading that. But like there wasn't a lot of necessary like nuance or more to read into in some of those books. And Battle Pope, I think, is the worst committer of that in that it it's just in your face for the sake of being offensive and there's there was a like a mentality that i had reading through that after i read through the first issue of just like is this robert kirkman's like super hyper religious book where like he's intentionally showing all of the bad stuff of the world is like a switch around to like convince you to convert to whatever religion he has and i haven't finished battle pope i don't think i ever read all of it but will you but i that was my no, absolutely not. <laughs> I don't have time for that. Uh, I, but like my the joke in my head was like, is this Robert Kirkman's way of like, like pulling the wool over your eyes to have like a big reveal at the end that you need to convert to whatever religion he's a part of? Um, I don't know if that's the case. A lot of swears, a lot of lot of sexual thingies in this book to make me believe that. But uh, anyways, that was just my weird thought. But yeah, I guess like. How do you how do you guys feel like now having gone back revisiting these things for Sailor Moon? I can see both why my parents didn't want me watching it at the time. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can see why it had staying power enough to get additional translations. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there there is, like I said, like the celebration of femininity, this like this big group of, of girls that have one another another's backs. Um, I feel like there's. There are certain things that have happened since then in pop culture that have really pulled on Sailor Moon as inspiration, Um, Mm -hmm. especially with the Magical Girl transformations. (laughs) Right. I mean, and so many people also cite this as like a serious inspiration for them to become a creator in some capacity or they they, you know, loved Sailor Moon as a kid. And that like was a driving force for them um, to want to create comics with that same kind of push for femininity and stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and now, I mean, I, I'm glad, I'm glad that comics and manga have exploded, um, out and, and will have different subject matter and different like superpowers and, and other, other, other combinations of, of groups in them. Like, I'm glad that we have something other than this on the market, but I really did mm-hmm. enjoy revisiting this knowing that I was going to, it was going to be a little outdated. Gotcha. What about you, Renee? Any 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 final thoughts about going back and rereading books that you've said you've read a couple times already? Yeah, yeah. Because I think w- before, because I just kind of read them just because one, they're the most easily accessible books because I I do read them so often. But this time, like, kind of going back into like thinking or realizing realizing that these are the books that kind of helped me get started or get back into comics, mm-hmm. and sort of realizing what why where I went from that, like. Hikaru no Go really did kind of keep my interest in manga because I've, I've told the story of, of like how I got the volume four of Dragon Ball Z from my cousin, but I had that for so many years and I didn't go explore other manga, but mm-hmm. reading Hikaru no Go made me want to read other manga. And then also it also introduced me to sort of, you know, non-battle manga. So it wasn't just always they have to be punching each other. Like there can be, right. you know, face-offs and, you know, did that, don't include battle 
in the they could be punching sense. each other in their minds. Yeah, yeah, or on the go board. <laughs> on the go board. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, I guess I'm I'm very appreciative of that. And then also, I think the fact that like these were aimed at the age group that I was at the time, because I think if I had tried reading series like Ubel Blatt or Berserk at that age, I don't think I would have continued to read manga. I think yeah. it would have scared. Or you would have been that like. Yeah, you've been that kid in the trench coat, black nail polish and stuff, hanging out in the corner, not caring about nothing. So I wanted to be that kid, but I wasn't that kid. Right, for... right, because you hadn't read Berserk is the problem. <laughs> no, because my mom scared the crap out of me about being that kid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, this is this has been a really interesting discussion. I, I, I'm glad that we were able to talk about it today, and I, I wasn't trying to bring the party down with my Battle Pope book, but guys, don't read Battle Pope <laughs> just don't just don't do it uh so um i guess to wrap things up you know uh you can follow us all on twitter you can follow renee at rodriguer 29 you can follow kate at kate elfier and you can follow me at mike rappin and the show at ircb podcast on twitter and instagram this podcast first aired on patreon and is possible because of our wonderful patrons join today for exclusive series like the ircb movie club saga of saga and more join now at patreon.com slash ircb podcast if you haven't already please rate and review our manga i mean show five stars <laughs> on apple Podcasts, stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts it really helps us spread the word about ircb and you can join the ircb discord community to chat about comics and more and listen to our episodes live as we record at ircbpodcast.com slash discord and it would help us a lot if you tell your friends your local comic book shop and any of the people you talk to about the show, whether in person, online, or safely distanced. We'd appreciate it. Uh, Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They do all of our music for the show. Uh, Xander is a cool guy who edits I read comic books, and you know, he just he just uh, he's just a nice person to be around. Uh, I want to say thanks to Renee and Kate for being on this episode. Thanks to Danny for listening live with us, and everybody out there who listens to the show. We really, really appreciate you. Go check out Candy Bar Antler Boy. It's the coolest thing in the world. Uh, and until next time, comics are good. And so are you.